Welcome to the X Oil Field Resource Podcast with Reed Styles. I'm fascinated by people that took their experience in the oil and gas industry and successfully applied their specialties to other careers and industries. I'm interviewing X Oil Field professionals with the intention of sharing their stories to inspire others to explore new careers. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Torregrossa. After graduating with an energy management degree in 2012, Ryan began working for Southwestern Energy as a landman. He transitioned out of oil and gas into the renewable space in 2018. He now works as a landman in the renewable space. Thank you for joining me today, Ryan. Thanks, Reed. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and uh, kind of some hobbies or interests that you have? Yeah, I'm from Houston, Texas, uh, born and raised, big fan of Houston. Um, I didn't grow up. Uh, in oil and gas, but um, I think like most people in Houston, we benefited greatly from it. My father is electrical contractor. My mom worked at like a fancy private school. So we were um, always impacted by the price of oil. We always were pretty cognizant of it. Um, I lived there for four years after college. It was a great time, great four years. I know you were right there with me and uh, made some of the some of the best connections and friendships of my life out there in Houston. It was a great town when oil was blowing and going. Now I live in Austin, Texas. It's a good vibe. It's a really, it's very different than Houston, but um, I'm really falling in love with it. Hobbies are about the same as they've been for a long time. Um, I'm still gardening and making kombucha. Been doing that for almost a decade now. I play guitar and piano every single day at 5 a.m. Done it for 365 days in a row twice. Um, it's kind of my thing right now. It's just trying to be the best musician I could be. I play in a band sometimes. We do Southern Rock. We cover the Black Crows and Aerosmith. And last year I played in uh, an Atlantis set cover band. So that was very Austin and interesting for you. I'm an assistant coach for a club soccer team, old man stuff. I like the stock market and real estate and uh, kind of similar to you. I'm into this content monetization thing going on and we're just trying to figure out with the kids, how they make a YouTube video or a TikTok and make a million dollars, I think. And uh, quarantine walks, probably the biggest part of my life, quarantine walks. So yeah, Austin's a good place for it. Well, man, thank you so much. And that's one thing I've always appreciated about you is you have so many different interests, but you're also really specialized in a few things in particular, piano and guitar. Um, and I think that's super cool. You have so many interests and you've been able to continue those to complement not only your professional, but just your personal life. And that's super cool. So. so walk us through your educational background and how you got into the oil and gas industry. Tulsa has a real rich energy background. Um, however, I went there as a music major. I was a scholarship jazz guitar and classical vocalist. So that was really my intent when I went there. Sure enough, uh, my freshman year was the first year they had an energy management program, which is, um, you know, if you're not from OU or tech, or Tulsa, you might not know, it's just kind of the business side of the oil and gas industry. Uh, so we called energy management, I think it was called energy commerce at tech, I think it was called petroleum land management at OU. But at the end of the day, it's just how you get into business and oil and gas on primarily the leasing side. So the on the upstream side. So, so I was walking to a business class, which was an elective in my liberal arts music degree. And the guy who had just started this um, energy management program. He was literally just standing out his office. This is the first year at Tulsa. And he, he was like, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Houston. He's like, great. You know about the oil industry. So he pulled me in. He gave me this real long spiel, but basically said he had like nine people sign up and he had 10 internships. And if I signed up, he would get me a paid internship. And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's do that. That the yeah, rest is history. Uh, got really deep involved into the oil and gas industry. And I graduated with energy management 
in a double major in finance, which was super reasonable at Tulsa, uh, just their tracks. And then I uh, have a minor in music and a minor in film scoring. So yeah, this is fun because I get to use my digital recording minor for the first time in a while. So I'm glad that I got to bust out the mics for this. Additionally, I got a full-time traditional MBA at uh, University of Houston while working at SWIN, which is not something I would recommend working full-time, going to school full-time, but had some special circumstances. My dad is a Vietnam veteran and he didn't go to college, neither did my mom. So he had 154 in-state Texas public school credits he could give to one of his dependents. And I decided to be that dependent. So I told my boss and my boss's boss that, um, you know, I wasn't looking for a job change or a raise. It was just a free education. So everyone at SWIN was very receptive of it and helpful during that very hard time. Internships, I uh, did Conoco Phillips in Bartlesville, Contra Resources in Midland, Texas, uh, BP Wind in Houston. And then I worked at a small independent Crow Creek Energy in Tulsa. So yeah, I think that's the resume section of my oil and gas career. <laughs> yeah. Solid, man. You know, you've had a lot of cool experiences. I know that I forgot it that you had gotten your MBA. I mean, I knew you all through that time and forgotten that you had done that. That's golden opportunity. I mean, I had I had to pay for mine and I'm still trying to decide the ROI on that. I mean, I think it's there, but it, it's a little easier to quantify if you start if you paid zero. Well, man, <laughs> if uh, the army paid for private school, I would have it would have been like an honor to go to rice like you did. It just, they were, they weren't picking up the tab for that. So it made, I know you probably know what I'm talking about. It's nice not to have options. Sometimes it was either go to you or don't do it. Yeah. I was like, all right, don't have to worry about it then. Yeah. You really have to be diligent about getting your money, your money's worth. So we've talked a little bit about kind of how you got here. We talked a little bit about your interest, personal interest on the side. So talk about your experience in oil and gas. Just, you know, tell us what you did at, at Swin at Southwestern. And I think a lot of people will be able to relate to, it, especially if they're in land in any capacity. Yeah, so started at Southwestern Energy. I was an in-house land man when the price was good and the, we were drilling wells. It was a really spectacular job. Um, I did horizontal wells in the Fayetteville Shale, which was kind of our bread and butter. We were very busy. Um, we broke our acreage down into teams, which I really uh, thought was cool, um, meaning I was basically assigned a geologist and a reservoir engineer and a production engineer and a regulatory agent, and we were a team for a year, you know, and I just thought we got really efficient and we knew exactly who to talk to. And um, so I thought that was a really fun job. After Swin, I, I took some time off and I kind of started working my way back into the oil industry. So I, I took a job at a, at a broker which is really just like big group of landmen that are just on call to help. So um, I took a job as a broker and I was working on their mergers and acquisitions team. And that was a really good job for uh, someone with a land background. So I think that's kind of my experience in the oil and gas industry. I think I'm your quintessential landman. No, that's cool. And I think, you know, I've only found you and one other person that have successfully transitioned to something that's different than oil and gas. Most people can relate to the landman side but they appreciate hearing that these are your jobs. And I think the next step is, can you take us to the moment that you realized you weren't going to go back into oil and gas and kind of what was your process to look for something different, but leveraging those landman skills? 
Well, it's a good question. You know, if you want to learn from me, who I think a lot of people listening to this might be going through their first time playoffs, these are the people who made it. So I guess just with everything knowing that this was me four years ago, even the title Landman is pretty tough to market outside the oil and gas industry. I think we are, we're in it and we glorify it a lot and the oil and gas, in a, like not inofficially glorify, I just mean it's like a real position that people want to be and it's competitive. But outside the oil gas industry, it kind of sounds silly. Like it, it's slang and it, it, it's a slang that the oil and gas in- industry has accepted. You know, I really give you permission on your resume to say what a landman is because a lot of people don't even know what that is. Yeah, even the degree energy meant. No one really reads that and knows what that is. But I like if you have an accountant degree, you at least have an idea. <laughs> or if you're a chemical engineer, it's like, well, I think I got an idea. Energy management can mean anything. I mean, you're a yoga instructor as far as I'm concerned. So getting back into the oil and gas industry, you know, the price just wouldn't recover. And I just think there was really only so long I was willing to wait. I don't know if the oil and gas industry broke up with me. I don't think I broke up with it. I probably would have stayed. You know, getting the broker job, I basically got on the spot. It's just a little different than the in-house job. And um, anytime I applied for an in-house land job, I would get replies that like from my friends who say like, man, 490 people applied for this job. We have no idea what we're going to do. Basically, all the cards were up against me, man, like to get back into the oil industry. And then um, the renewable sector just doesn't really track oil and gas. Um, the renewable sector is an, elect- is an electricity play. So it's not really we don't really compete with the oil industry at all. Maybe more the natural gas industry. But yeah, um, I didn't really have a lot of animosity towards it. It kind of just didn't work out where I was going to find another oil and gas job, I think. No, I think those are great points, especially in regards to Swin being a natural gas company. Probably some people that may not know much about the Fayetteville Shale. I mean, it's been pretty slow. I don't track it carefully, but when I look on drilling info, I don't see any rigs over there. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like the Barnett Shale. It's like we know it's there. It was lucrative at one time, but it's probably pretty slow right now. I, I think renewables are a catch-all for if you're into renewables, you're anti-oil and gas. And I think that was a big thing I wanted us to talk about is if you're pro-solar, then you have to be anti-oil and gas. And I think maybe the more practical response would be, you know, we should be pro-cheapest, most efficient, best product and also whatever meets our demand. Maybe you could just kind of dive into finding the job. Like, how'd you find this job? Was it, how'd you find Austin? I think it's it's just like the pretty normal answer. I found it on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's funny why that's even a big question. If you got laid off, you know all about LinkedIn, but if you are just now getting laid off and you graduated when you and me did, you're probably not that into it. Like, I mean, I know it's the lifeline to getting a job these days, but it wasn't that way in 2008. Uh, LinkedIn was not as big as a deal. It just wasn't. So I found it on LinkedIn and I was looking in the wrong places. I, I was looking in cities um, that just weren't as hiring as much. I was Austin is. I think if you if you need to get a job quick, you could probably find one in Austin or New York City or Denver. It just seems like my friends who move to those places get jobs, even if it's not exactly what they want. You know, it took me about twelve months to find the job I wanted. It took it took about six weeks of that twelve months for this job to come through. The second I changed to a city that was hiring. I became just a little more competitive and uh, my they were apt to get back to me. It's a seller's market in Austin where like if you have a skill set, people are like, okay, let's just hire them because if not, 
Facebook's going to hire them in 10 seconds, or there's Indeed and Google and Apple. I, there's just so much competition out here. So go somewhere where you have a little power, you know, somewhere with some leverage. It's not going to be the case in every city. Um, probably Houston, it might be hard to find a job with the oil industry down. Um, you know, or anything international, you're probably not going to be an expat right now. Like companies are cutting costs. Just like get get with the times, properly adjust your profile because you'll be a lot happier if you um, do what I did and kind of change my goals. You know, it wasn't making a lot of money where I wanted to live as a landman. You know, it was using the skill sets that I like and then living in a place that was conducive to my lifestyle. It, it all worked out, but that's really how I found it. You know, get on the LinkedIn. That's where the jobs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a similar experience finding my job. I mean, it was a slow two-year process. I interviewed for a lot of different stuff. I don't think I got those jobs because I wasn't very passionate about it. And then this kind of all happened at once. Like you said, within a month, you know, I had two opportunities that popped up at once. So patience was the name of the game. And I'd like to think that it kind of things happened when they needed to happen kind of thing. And I'm sure it was kind of with you. I mean, it kind of all worked, kind of all fell into place because you were patiently looking. And you probably didn't even think of renewables immediately, but this opportunity kind of presented itself because you started thinking outside of Houston and all that. So tell us about what you actually do on a day-to-day -day in like landman oil and gas terms that they may relate to. Because it sounds like you're doing very similar types of stuff. So I'm at a company called RWE now, RWE Renewables Americas, and we're one of the largest uh, renewable players on earth so we're definitely more of like a conoco phillips or an exxon than like a southwestern energy so we do wind solar battery and we have some hydrocarbons as well that we're trying to phase out primarily in germany my job is very dynamic i work on the legal team we don't call it the land management team so like i said the vernacular has got to change like i i really think in order to stay competitive if you're a petroleum engineer or if you're a landman, you gotta, you need to give your resume to someone who doesn't work in oil and gas so they can say, what does this mean? If you put HPB held by production in, in, a, in a resume, if someone who doesn't, you know, monitor lease obligations, they're not going to know what that is. And it just kind of seems silly. So um, one thing I do is that I manage a portfolio for a, a huge financial firm. There's a lot of companies that buy working interest of renewable plays um, for tax reasons. They might own like some coal, they might own some oil and gas, and they um, have to purchase production tax credits, uh, renewable energy credits in order to stay in compliance with their like carbon output. Well, if they just buy wind farms, they can just use that instead and uh, offset it. So a lot of companies do that. And I just manage their portfolios. You know, like having a lot of money doesn't mean you know how to operate a wind farm. So we have some clients that we just, we do all their, um, all their turn buying stuff, all their manufacturing, all their moving, all their maintenance, and then all their land stuff. So I'm managing, uh, landowners, I'm managing ownership changes. Um, I'm sending checks. Um, if someone leaves open a gate and the cow gets out, that's still my job. Um, sometimes I'm just collecting information for W9s. Uh, sometimes I'm mailing out letters because something went wrong. Sometimes we're trying to get um, certain forms drafted so we can move forward with deals. Um, so that's what I'm doing for a lot of part. Like I said, it's just a lot of land. I'm just kind of a landman. Again, it's just, it's all the same stuff. We have a lease, 
with the term and I manage those lease obligations for the most part, or at least the business side. I, I'm also on the land team for the solar for solar guys. So we're broken up. We basically have a lot of brokers that we call developers. In my world, these are guys that we would hire from a third party. People that live out and where the project is and they know they know the people out there and they know how the deals are done out there. So we would call, we would hire them to go get the leases. Well, at my company, those are kind of our in-house landmen. So it's built really differently and kind of interestingly. And then I kind of have a position where I do all the introverted parts of the uh, land discipline. So I'm not winding and dining. I don't have to make a bunch of phone calls. I don't have to do any presentations, but I get to do all the stuff that I actually like to do. I get to do the budgeting I get to do the title changes and the, and, you know, getting the royalty amounts right and having crazy big spreadsheets that take net revenue and everything. So um, that's basically what I'm doing. I, like I said, um, I would say the renewable sector is pretty similar. Um, I'm doing a lot of things that I did in, in oil and gas. We have, I use land software. I use SAP. Um, yeah, for the most part, it's really, we, we go on site trips where we'll go just like we used to go to the rig. So yeah, pretty, pretty similar to be completely honest with you. And I think there is a, an engineering world. Instead of geologists, we have meteorologists and they have PhDs and they're, um, and they're published and they're nerdy, <laughs> you know, and they went to school for 19 years and they go measure wind speed and wind shear before we, you know, just like a geologist would look at the ground. And then I think we have our, our production engineer that runs, they take the data from the turbine manufacturers and then they take the data from the G, from the meteorologist and run it through simulations and see if the type curve is going to be conducive to our present value factor. It's like literally the same, the same stuff, man. So, yeah. I've never really talked to anyone about it in depth and I'm just, my mind is blown. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And your whole point about really tailoring your, your resume to the job and uh, just taking out the jargon of your resume. I mean, this has got me inspired on one key point. So if oil and gas is very similar in that you have a flow stream, it's going to yield a certain amount of energy and you're going to be paid a certain amount of energy for that oil or gas. And obviously renewables are similar. You're going to get paid a certain amount of money. How do the landowners treat you compared to oil and gas do they care what's on their leases or on their land like do they kind of have that more environmentally conscious mind or is it just hey if you can put a turbine here or a gas well i'm down man it's pretty similar i think um you know you're just you're still dealing people whose wealth is in their land you know they're that's where that's that's what makes dollars and cents to them so when you're trying to make their land more valuable, they're always going to have a lot of questions and want to be involved. And um, it doesn't really matter if it's via corn or oil or, or the sun. Um, a lot of these people want to, you know, just be treated with respect and uh, not talked down to. I don't see a huge difference. I'd say I dealt mostly with people from Arkansas at Southwestern, and I deal with mostly with people from California or Illinois. So I think the main differences is just that. You know, people from Texas are different than people from California. They're different from people from Illinois. Right? These people didn't even know that they could um, make money out of their land like this. They've been farmers their whole life. So they're real interested with the turbines, mainly, can we have a center pivot irrigation system? Can we keep farming corn or cotton? But at the end of the day, I, I have leases where I can't go on because they have a deer lease in effect in September or 
you know, they have a bluegrass festival in May that they don't want anybody on. It's the same stuff as the oil and gas industry for me, especially in terms of landowners. That's fascinating. So now you've been working almost two years in the renewable space. Have you noticed any trends in how people in the renewable space generally view oil and gas? Or do they kind of look at it as, hey, look, that's just another piece of the energy puzzle? You know, again, just like I said, Arkansas, Illinois, I think a lot of it just depends where people are from. Uh, the people I work with from Texas are still pretty pro oil and gas. I think if you grew up in Texas, you're probably one degree away from somebody who benefits greatly from the oil and gas industry. A lot of uh, a lot of them were landmen in the oil and gas industry before they moved over to renewables, mainly brokers. The people from California, uh, Oregon, yeah, they're a little more anti oil and gas. They'll 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 let you know that they didn't like that you were you know I fracked like 400 wells in Arkansas. And I'm not apologizing for it, but it still happened. If you didn't personally frack them, you just made sure that they were, could legally be there to frack. <laughs> I played a role, but I went. I'm not the. Yeah, then the people from the Midwest, I like, that's the new people that I've always kind of liked the most. They just are interested and want to talk. I, I've been asked so many times if I voted for Beto or something, you know, like they're just a little more Midwesty and kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're country folk. We lease wind where it's windy and it's usually not like in a city, you know. So it's people that live far away. It's people who don't have email addresses. But for the most part, um, I think no one has a, a lot of animosity towards the oil and gas industry. Long story short, you know, the, the mineral estate has the, uh, you know, I can't remember the terminology, but basically they have the right to the surface no matter what in the oil in a lot of states. So sometimes we run into some problems because we need to get on the surface <laughs> to put up a wind turbine. So that's the only time I have beef with my oil and gas friends because that happened to us one time when I was at Swin and we were so excited to sign that waiver because we thought it was cool that we were being helpful to the environment. And then when I, I didn't, I don't always return the favor when I try to take the rights away from some of the oil and gas people. I know obviously they're differing ownership between mineral subsurface and the surface. So a lot of times these you're dealing with the actual farmers who lost their mineral rights long ago, especially in Texas and Oklahoma, right? So this may be their chance to actually capitalize if they don't even own the minerals. Yeah. And we don't, most of the time we don't even deal with minerals. It's um, from a land perspective, it is a much, I mean, easier is the word. I don't want to water it down, but uh, dealing with surface rights and dealing with mineral rights is just a whole different ballgame. People hold on to their minerals forever and people really don't care about the surface because all it is is a tax liability. So um, you can almost go lease a project off of the tax records, which is public. You don't, I mean, like we don't do that. We go get a title opinion, but usually the person who's paying taxes on the surface is probably the owner, you know? Wow. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That's a nice dynamic. It's a little cleaner. Yeah. There's a lot of companies that there's oil companies who try to do that too. And that's what you call drill now, ask later. Uh, we know some companies do that. It never works out. So I wouldn't no. recommend <laughs> the surface of the minerals are not very often the same people. Now that I work at a mineral company, I'm very familiar with due diligence and how important it is. So Right on. Good for you. Yeah, that's a that's a really good thing to have experience in no matter what industry you're in. Buying houses, selling houses. Yeah, title, title closing, escrow. That's good stuff to know. All right, so let's let's change gears a little bit. I know we're kind of getting towards the end of your time and I want to respect that. I know that there was a period between oil and gas and renewables where you were working at a few different jobs and kind of trying some different careers. 
during that time, do you have any just general advice about soul searching or just resources people could kind of cling to during this time to just really help out, figure out who they are or what they want to do? I think the the layoff can be a really good time to unplug and kind of reconnect um, and try to readjust your goals. I was putting a lot of my self-worth into my job, which I think we all do. That's why I went to school for you know 15 years. So when you don't have that and it takes a long time to get back and you kind of learn about what you're worth and stuff. But I do say um, I'd probably take a week or two off if you have it in you. If you just get laid off, I think, uh, you know, I don't know what you think you're, if you're going to retire 45 minutes earlier for that two week paycheck. I, I think you'd be better off, you know, spending some time for yourself or with your spouse or your family or just uh, my time in between was pretty dynamic. I, I, I moved to New York City for a year and I just wanted to be to see if I could break even as a professional musician because that's kind of what I started college with. So that was my goal, April to April. And uh, that's what I did. I mean, I was a professional musician for a year. It was a lot harder than working in corporate America. It was really difficult. But I just wanted to make sure I could do it. So, I mean, not everyone's going to have something like that. I completely understand. But I do think you might have some time to do something to just like, you know, like if you have a $15,000 emergency fund, I don't know, maybe spend 3000 of it on starting a business or like just seeing what you're made of, you know, like you got a little time, you might as well do it. Time is the most valuable thing at this point of your life. It's not money anymore. It's not career. It's just your time. So I think you should keep working, even if you have to take some jobs that aren't great for you. But I will also say I know people who didn't and did just fine. I think it's a little different than for everybody. I needed to stay busy for my mental wellness. I kind of live by the the moving object is hard to stop kind of thing. Like if I take a big break, I can't get like, so I just keep going. Um, in New York to get by, I worked for a carpenter for a bit. You know, that's just a skill set I had. Um, I worked at a bar for a bit because I thought that was the quintessential musician move. Uh, my best friend's is Jeff and I wanted a little experience. But then at this bar, they had a concert every night. So I got to see a show every night I worked. So as a musician, I was trying to get experience. So that was an impactful kind of easy job to get. Like I was just working at the front of the house. I saw a show every night. Um, I worked the green room. So I got to meet, you know, I was in Brooklyn. So like, I don't know, John Mayer was there one day, the Grateful Dead. They were jamming RuPaul, uh, Two Dope Queens. I, I did Steve Madden's Christmas party. He was a night, you know, he's in Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, DJ Questlove was the was their residency DJ. He's the drummer for the Roots. Like, I mean, I was making minimum wage and I had an MBA and I was like, you know, cleated floors. But uh, it was like market research for me. Seeing all those bands helped me get an edge. Those are the most successful people in the world that I just mentioned. And I was like, okay, I need to be around these people every day. So I recommend doing something, you know, working on something you that you care about and just keep getting skill sets. You'd be surprised. Any experience translates, even if you get into the service industry. When you're in an interview and you're like, I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves, what there's nothing that says that better than being a waiter or a waitress. Like you could but yeah, and it was a really good gig, but I told you it was a year. I wanted to get back to an energy job. So kind of from the soul searching question you said, I just prepare yourself to be told no a lot. I think the worst thing that happens is right when you get laid off, you hear back because you're hitting the lowest aiming, the lowest hanging fruit. And then you might get an interview and then you don't hear back and you're all, you're like, man, 
I have an hour and then two years later of that, nothing affects you anymore. You know what I mean? Like you might get a lot of ghosted, no matter how far it gets, like until you get that paycheck, I would just keep moving forward. I, like I said, I'm not sure if everyone's going to be able to play music in New York City for a year as glorifying as it sounds, but I do think everyone has something because even if it's spending more time with your spouse or getting your house that you bought up to date or spending more or adopting a dog or a cat or being a better mother or father, those are all super admirable things to do. It doesn't have to look good on an Instagram post anymore. You have plenty of time. You have all day. You're laid off. Just do it for yourself. You don't need to rush it. It's not going to look perfect. And I'll say it like, I wish I didn't get laid off. It was still really hard to be unemployed or underemployed. Like, I'm not really going to look back and say like, it was the best thing to ever happen to me because, you know, I mean, there's so many things to take away. I mean, the first is obviously your path into oil and gas. I think a lot of people can relate to that, either going to school, law school or energy management school, jumping in and becoming a landman. And then that transition period, I mean, there's so many nuggets to extract. I think a lot of people are probably running through the same ideas. They're like, should I just do something totally different from oil and gas? Or should I try to keep grinding away to get into oil and gas? Or should I look at an alternative? And so I think that you gave a lot of great ideas of even if you don't immediately get back into oil and gas, keep doing something. Keep, like you said, you know, keep that momentum going. And then in the interviews, sell that. You know, don't have a sob story about how you just sat around and didn't work during this time. You really tried to do new things. You really, I mean, you kept progressing. And it sounds like a lot of those experiences have carried over into the renewable space. Even though it's similar to oil and gas, you still have all those cool experiences. So I just really appreciate you sharing. And uh, yeah, so do you have any asks for the audience? Uh, where can they find you? Um, any kind of closing remarks? You know, I'd say subscribe to this podcast, give Rita a five star, that kind of stuff really has a positive impact on his project. I think probably in ways that you have no idea that it, it just the way the algorithms work, super useful. I too got into content creation and content monetization when I got laid off because I thought how important it was. So I do, I, I mean, I have a website I contribute to just for myself, how easy it is to create a website to to get a podcast going or, or to get music on iTunes or Spotify, I guess you could you could check that out. It's called covercall.com. I do like really just like my hobbies and it's for myself only. Just so if I'm ever laid off, I can use this stuff to have a personal brand, a personal website, an online profile, things that are very important that weren't important in 2007. All those links will be in the description of the podcast. We'll have Ryan's website. We'll have his LinkedIn. And uh, I'm sure if you have any questions about the renewable space, he'd love to talk with you on LinkedIn or if you just want to connect and follow his content. I mean, he's definitely a good follow. So thank you for joining me today on the Exoil Field Resource Podcast. Remember, guys, we're going to have a lot of different guests. We're going to have a lot of different people that have different backgrounds. And if you're really enjoying the show, consider sharing it with a friend. And if you know someone would be great for the show, email me, read at exoilfield.com. So thanks, Ryan, for your time today. I really appreciate it. No problem, man.